This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi all. What next producer Madeline Ducharme here? Just a heads up, you'll hear sounds of gunshots later in this episode. So Yair, if you had to describe the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians right now, I'm kind of curious the language you would use. Like, like what word would you use? Um, I would say perilous, uh, precipitous. I've heard the word spiraling used. Yeah. Is that a word you'd use? I would use uh, that word. Yair Rosenberg writes about politics and religion over at The Atlantic. I called him up to help me make sense of weeks of headlines from the Middle East. As we reported, today was the deadliest day in the occupied West Bank in two decades. Israeli forces Raids on Palestinian settlements have been ramping up. Attacks on Jews have been too. A gunman killed seven people gathering at a synagogue in Jerusalem last month. Israeli police are calling this a terrorist attack. They say the gunman in today's attack was shot and killed by police. You just have this constant thrumming that's going on, and it keeps getting louder. There's not a good place to start this latest chapter of ongoing violence and retribution. But to Yair, this moment is undoubtedly worse because of the way leadership is changing, both in Israel and the West Bank. He says a rightward lurch in Israel is leaving Palestinians feeling... Like, they don't have much to lose. The reason why people perceive a spiral, the CIA director has warned that he sees signs of uh, increased violence on the horizon, is because um, political developments in both Palestinian politics and Israeli politics that seem to be empowering more, you could say, extremist voices, voices that are more absolutist, voices that uh, don't perceive any area for compromise. Just a few minutes before Yair and I got on the line, There was another attack. A car rammed into a bus stop in East Jerusalem. A six-year-old boy got killed. You know, I don't know where the spiral ends. I sort of see people looking over a cliff. And the question is how far things will go. But everything I've seen sort of shows like developments on both the Israeli side and the Palestinian side leading to greater friction and greater clashes and potentially greater violence. Today on the show, why the Middle East is on edge right now and why very few people seem positioned to pull it back. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. 
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The reason I thought Yair Rosenberg could explain this tense moment particularly well is because he just wrote an article attempting to do just that through the lens of two towns in the West Bank, Bita and Eviatar. The headline was, From this hill, you can see the next intifada. To be honest, he felt a little uncomfortable calling it that. We were we go back and forth on that headline because I would say you could see it. You could see the conditions for it. You could see how it could happen. But I wanted to be careful not to be saying that I know where this ends. And also just because something doesn't explode into a massive scale, wide scale violence, right? Or, you know, something that we might label with the word intifada doesn't mean uh, that it doesn't merit attention, doesn't mean that people aren't suffering. Yair chose this particular location, far away from the Gaza Strip or Jerusalem, because it's only deep into the West Bank that you can see the way that Israeli settlements are pushing Palestinians to the brink. The West Bank, of course, makes up the bulk of the Palestinian territories. But that's not how the settlers see it. 
So one thing to understand about the ideological settler movement is that it is obviously entirely opposed uh, to a Palestinian state in, in the West Bank and other parts of the land of Israel. They want to be on this land because they like, if you open up the Torah, if you open up the Bible, and you look at them like some of the holiest places uh, in Jewish tradition, the things where most significant things happened, they're not actually where, you know, say the state of Israel necessarily is, like in Tel Aviv, they're in the West Bank. Uh, these are the, like the historic heartlines of the Jewish people. Some of the holiest sites are in the West Bank. Um, and so they want to live there and they they think that they have the right to be there. And the only reason they're not there is because Jews were repeatedly removed or expelled by you know Muslim and Christian rulers over the years. And so once they finally had the opportunity to show up, they did. And to be clear, a settlement like this one gets erected with the clear intention of cutting Palestinian communities off from each other, right? Like making a united Palestinian state much harder to create. And the greatest nightmare of these people is that Israel will strike a deal with the Palestinians and grant them uh, a state. And then the Palestinians will have this land and they will no longer be able to live there and they will no longer be able to access their holy sites and so on. And so they have spent a lot of uh, effort and time and resources attempting to build these small communities that aren't even that big sometimes, but are designed to disrupt the contiguity of Palestinian areas in the West Bank to make it hard to create a continuous Palestinian state. Because the theory is, and I would we can discuss whether I think this is this is a realistic theory if they're correct about this, but they call this creating facts on the ground. If we just put enough roadblocks on the ground of these small little communities, well, then there's no way that they can actually make a realistic Palestinian state. And so we will have foreclosed the option. For years, the Palestinian town of Bita felt lucky to have avoided attracting unwanted Israeli neighbors. But about 10 years back, their luck ran out. The settlement of Eviatar appeared. So in 2013, a Israeli named Evita Barofsky is killed in the area by a terrorist, and that was the precipitating reason or justification for why the outpost was first erected in 2013, and then several years after it. Why do I say several years after it? Because each time they tried to do it, the Israeli authorities showed up, dismantled the settlement, and kicked the people out uh, because it was against Israeli law, and Israel did not believe that they were supposed to be there. And so Pita, you know, was was fine because they were, you know, they were like, good, this is good. That's what they wanted. And this happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. And then it happens in 2021. And then something different happens. Is it the same people each time, like coming back? Like the same people who are just like, we're just gonna come back with a new truck. And some of them, it's the same people, right? It's a there's entire organizational movements behind this. And they are persistent. And so they come back in, and each time they try to put more pressure on the government and try to make it harder for the government to dislodge them. And what they did in 2021 is that they had prepared. And so by the time, and they did it in, you know, ostensibly in response to another terrorist attack in the area, but they were very, very well resourced and they built a whole bunch of makeshift buildings really fast. Stuff that's hard to tear down. You can't just sweep it away. Exactly. Harder to move and making it you know, a bigger price for the government, a bigger media spectacle if they do take the people away. And at the time, Israel was going through repeated elections, Benjamin Netanyahu on trial for corruption and breach of trust. And he desperately needs the hard right in his corner if he has any hope of holding on to power. And so he does not want the spectacle of clearing this place. It is not something he wants to deal with. And so he sort of punts, right? Doesn't say I'm leaving it there, but he doesn't get rid of it as quickly as they normally do, which eventually, of course, allows them to stay. So after years of this settlement being erected and then taken down and erected and taken down again, now all of a sudden it seems like... It might have a chance, yeah. And so that is what galvanizes Bita, right? And that is why I went there, because then for some intense several months, 
the villagers of Bita do these evening like protests that are nonstop with a whole bunch of different components, some violent, some nonviolent. So they start burning tires uh, and making sure, you know, directionally that the smoke wafts up into the settlement. They start blasting music. <laughs> They're making it really unpleasant. Exactly. They start shining laser pointers at the settlement. Like these are all nonviolent ways of trying to make the settlers miserable. There are also firebombs and explosives. At one point later on, the settlement will be set on fire. Right. So it becomes very, very fraught. <laughs> Well, they burned an effigy of a swastika, too, right? So later on, they will actually burn uh, an effigy of a uh, Star of David um, and a swastika inside of it. And so, like, well, as you can see, there's a tremendous amount of animosity, right? And, and again, there's, again, they perceive this. This is our area, our land. And we also know that if you stay here, right, you're not going away, right? And uh, they're very worried about what's going to happen if that does. Um, and so they're doing these, these uh, intensive, intensive protests. And some of the elements, right, look like they're going to spill over into, like, actual violence, right? Or in some cases, setting things on fire, like actual explosives, stuff like that. And so the Israeli army then gets dispatched to sort of stand between the small group of settlers and this entire village. Because, of course, the, the normal response would be just clear this the settlement, right, and then this ends. But because the government's not willing to do that, they have to do this instead. And when you have a giant armed force facing off against a bunch of villagers, the predictable thing happens, which is there are clashes and the people who win are the soldiers. And so hundreds of Palestinians are injured and several of them are killed. And this does not end the protest. Of course, it galvanizes it. Um, and it continues to go on. Then... Netanyahu loses power. And as some who follow Israeli politics know, uh, Israel for you know, a little bit over a year's time had an anti-Netanyahu coalition of sort of Frankensteinian amalgam of right-wingers, left-wingers, Arabs, Jews, and their basic uniting principle was we have to keep Netanyahu and the extremists out of power, even though we ourselves can't agree on a whole lot of other things. Right. Unfortunately, the coalition didn't make a lot of sense politically. It had a lot of troubles holding together. And so you had this coalition, and so they said, okay, hey, it's, this, this settlement is illegal under Israeli law. And so they do, in fact, clear it. They strike a sort of faith-saving compromise uh, with the settlers. It's for the settlers, but it's also because, remember, this government itself has right-wing elements in it, and they want them not to take as much of a hit when they're clearing these settlers out. And so they say, well, we're going to study the area, and we're going to find out if there's any reason why we could let you come back, and we'll leave the buildings up, but we'll take all the people away. So it's kind of like a middle path. In theory. But now fast forward to today, and Israel has a new government. And Netanyahu's back in power. Netanyahu's back in power, and his government has actually got more uh, settler elements in it. It has people uh, in it who are actually personally friends with or even affiliated with Aviatar, right, and the people running it. Um, and not just Aviatar, but similar places, places that um, the, the most radical settlers have attempted to settle, even though they're against Israeli law. Those people, they used to be the lawbreakers. Now they're the lawmakers. After the break how Israeli and Palestinian leaders are addressing this conflict, or not. When Yair Rosenberg last visited Bita and Eviatar, the two places were in the midst of a tense standoff, and they were waiting to see how Israel's new hardline government would get involved in their ongoing dispute. Remember, Israel's governing coalition got less than 50% of the vote, 
So they are by no means representing the entire country. But that doesn't really matter when you have the power to make the laws. So I asked Yair what he learned from watching the new governing coalition settle in and what that could mean for the weeks ahead. So you learn that it's easier to campaign than it is to govern. Um, So Hmm. you have a bunch of very right-wing parties that comprise a part of this new right-wing Israeli coalition that promised a very strong draconian measures across the board, including towards Palestinians, but also internally on Israeli society against uh, leftists and others. And now in practice, they've been having a lot of trouble actually doing those things. You've kind of compared it to Kevin McCarthy in the United States, where he's in charge of the Republicans in the House, but that means he's beholden to these extreme people. Yeah, so you get two things. One is that you have the leader on top who is beholden to the extremists because they need every single vote. And on the other hand, because everything is so narrow, the coalition becomes so dysfunctional uh, because you need every single vote. And so it's written into the coalition agreements that Evyatar will be repopulated. Now, it's important to understand that coalition agreements in Israel are not unlike U.S. party platforms. They're often observed in the breach. They're not legally binding. A little bit of wish casting. Yeah, there's wish casting. It's sort of like making everybody happy by saying all the things that everybody says they want to do. And then in practice, the government does you know, a handful of them. But the fact that it's in there shows the commitment. And the fact that there are people who are ideologically committed to these places who are in the government suggests that it will be on the agenda if the government survives long enough to get to it. The people on the other side of this conflict, the Palestinian Authority, I wonder if we can talk about them. Because you've alluded to the fact that their power is fading. So why why is that? They still technically control the West Bank, but what does that actually mean? Yeah. So the Palestinian Authority was set up um, as the body that would negotiate with Israel uh, with a long-term plan of them being the people who would govern the future state of Palestine. So they were a uh, tool created to create a Palestinian state. Now, as you know, there is no Palestinian state. The peace process did not work. The negotiations have not yielded a result. And as such, the Palestinian Authority is sort of spinning its wheels and its purpose for existing becomes increasingly questionable. Add to that the fact that the person running it, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the the president, right, is in the 18th year of his four-year term, right? This is not somebody that that, uh, Palestinians have been given the opportunity to vote for or replace. Add to that uh, large, well-documented instances of corruption among the elite in the Palestinian Authority, where a lot of times, you know, money and aid money and other things seem to somehow end up in the hands of a few wealthy people and their families rather than everyday Palestinians. And add to that uh, the you know the increasing despair at any possibility of a negotiated solution among Palestinians and Israelis, and you sort of have a recipe for the Palestinian Authority you know losing its legitimacy and other groups competing to fill the void. If you walk around the West Bank and you and you ask people about the Palestinian Authority, what do they tell you? Well, depending on how you know, some of them will just you know shrug their shoulders. Uh, first of all, there's still significant support for the Palestinian Authority. Is it majority support? Not clear. Right. But of course, there's, you know, a lot of people who voted for them in the past and would vote for them again. People might tell you they're you know, the lesser of two evils, things like that, because, you know, who am I going to vote for? Hamas. Right. Things like that. But then you have people who say they're basically the subcontractors of the Israelis hmm. uh, because they were there to negotiate a two state solution. And that was the justification for pursuing more nonviolent means against Israel. But look, we don't have a two state solution. And so therefore, they're basically just existing to enforce you know, nonviolence and their own prerogatives and collect money and stuff like that without actually serving us. It's interesting. I was looking at some of the reports of violence over the last few weeks, Palestinians who shot at a synagogue, and 
what stood out to me was that in the days after that, it was hard to find a connection between that person and organized resistance. And it seemed to me like individual actors in this moment were getting frustrated and taking action. And in some ways that was very dangerous, more dangerous, because you don't know who to talk to to calm things down. One reason uh, that this particular wave of violence and terrorism has been hard to stop from these Israeli authorities, the Israeli authorities have a lot of resources at their disposal, but it's very hard to stop lone gunmen, right? people who are sort of self-radicalized. And so the more of those that you have, you can send a bunch of commandos to go and have a firefight with you know, another bunch of commandos on the other side. Uh, but you can't know that somebody is sitting, you know, watching a, a video on TikTok or Facebook or hearing about something horrible that happened to someone that they know or in their family and deciding, I'm going to do this thing. And the only way to combat those would be to make more fundamental changes. And that would be, say, Netanyahu saying tomorrow, I want to do some serious negotiations about a two-state solution, and I'm willing to make certain concessions. And that is just not a thing Netanyahu is going to do. And, you know, on the other side of it, they would say to, you know, to defend the position, they would say, like, who exactly is he supposed to negotiate with? You know, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, who has no legitimacy, uh, democratic, and is seen as corrupt, or Hamas, the, the theocratic terrorist group that runs Gaza and is committed to Israel's destruction as, you know, it's writ. Um, so they would say we have no one to talk to, uh, but Netanyahu has no real interest in changing that situation and hasn't for quite some time. One thing you wrote that I wanted to ask you about is is you talked about how the protest movement in, in Bita seemed different. Like it didn't look like what had come before. I'm wondering if you can explain what you meant by that. Yeah, so... You made reference to the fact that it was sort of a bottom-up protest. There wasn't the Palestinian Authority or any militant or non-militant group that was getting together and saying, here's what we're going to do. It was the village sort of organically deciding and organizing itself and saying, here's what we're going to do in response to this thing happening to us. And that's sort of a rejection of the traditional authority structures and the way that uh, resistance, so to speak, was managed. And the idea was, uh, again, that like anybody can do this. You don't need to wait for someone to show up on your doorstep and to organize. And especially if you don't trust your institutions to do that, well, Palestinians can do it themselves. So... What's the status of Eviatar today? Like, is Eviatar still standing? Does it have people in it? Yeah. So when I was there uh, in December, and this is still the case today, there are no people there, right? They're still just buildings. But you have seen already some efforts uh, to start moving on these settlement issues. How are the residents of Bita doing? Because they must be just waiting for whatever happens next. Yes. Very anxiously. So I went to the village of Park to ask, what would happen if the settlers came back? And they said, we will start up all the protests again. And not only that, we think that if we do this and we do it long enough, that other places in the West Bank will look at us and see us as a role model. And they'll start trying to do the same thing. And it will lead to sort of, you know, this wildfire across the West Bank. And so when I was talking to some of the activists there, they're saying, well, we really don't want the settlers to come back on our land, right? Um, but we kind of hope they do because they would give us the opportunity to sort of take center stage and try to do this thing. 
And so it was sort of like both they don't and both they, and they do. They're sort of, you know, and they, they were conflicted in a very strange. They're spoiling for a fight. Exactly. Spoiling for a fight. And again, this this relates to the fact that they no longer like look at the Palestinian Authority as representative or legitimate. And they think that those efforts, those formal efforts at, you know, resisting Israel or negotiating a state have failed. But it's time for, uh, you know, sort of a new movement to free Palestinians from the occupation. And they want to start it. And if you look at polls of Palestinians, there are increasing numbers of Palestinians who think that the next thing that they should do is violent resistance to Israel, rather than necessarily negotiations, rather than some sort of nonviolent protest. Um, Those numbers have been going up. And when you look at who the Israelis have just elected, uh, the people they just elected are also people who think that the approach to uh, Palestinian terrorism um, and to any sort of unrest whatsoever in the West Bank is increasing clampdowns, increasing activity by Israeli troops uh, and commandos in the West Bank. So what I can describe to you is looking at, you know, who is ascendant on the Palestinian side? Who is ascendant on the Israeli side? These are not people prone to compromise, right? These are people who think that the solution is um, going to come with more force, not less. Yair says, if this makes it sound like all Israelis and Palestinians are out for blood, that isn't the case. There are plenty of people who want to see the conflict come to a peaceful resolution. They're just not the people in power. You know, I think a lot of Palestinians, and this is true of most Palestinians, most Israelis uh, that I speak to, what they just want is actually to just put food on the table for their families, get by through another day. Um, they don't want to experience violence. They don't want to experience conflict. And if you're Palestinian, you don't want to have to deal with people showing up next door on your land, which could then result in further violence or land confiscation or other conflict and friction. These are, you know, and Israelis, they just don't, they want to be able to go to synagogue, right into a bus stop and not have to worry about being uh, killed by terrorists. That's what most people want. But as we sort of discussed the dynamics of how these, the, the politics have played out for quite some time is that, more extreme factions often wield disproportionate power because they're more so more committed, they're more ideological, they're more organized. So it doesn't really matter, for example, that this Israeli government has less than 50% of the vote, and then only a fraction of that is the hard right, uh, highly committed settler faction because their votes are so important and because they are very, very ideologically committed and they will go to the mat for their things. They get their way more often than not, despite the fact that they're going to the mat for things like Evyatar, which the average Israeli has no investment in. So when you talk about, you know, what is the what is the everyday Palestinian want? They they want to just live a normal life like the rest of you, like you and me. And then, you know, there is also absolutely, I think, I think it's under discussed in, you know, the broader media. There are plenty of people, both Israelis and Palestinians, who see this as a zero-sum conflict and don't actually want to negotiate a solution. They want to win. They want to win everything. And it, maybe it will take 200 years, but they're going to win it eventually. Yeah, Ira, I'm really grateful for your time and for your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me to talk about it. Yair Rosenberg is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of its newsletter, Deep Shtetl, about the intersection of politics, culture, and religion. And that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to show us some love is to figure out how to join our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. You get all kinds of cool benefits like all access to Slate.com and ad-free podcasts like this one. The way to do it is to go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Paige Osborne, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are getting a ton of support from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. 
Talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.